From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Third Degree. I'm Ellie Honig. Well, things were already looking bad for Derek Chauvin, of course. The man has just recently been convicted of two counts of murder and one count of manslaughter in Minneapolis state courts for killing George Floyd. But Derek Chauvin still might have had some slight glimmer of hope. His attorney just filed a motion for a new trial. From a prosecutor's point of view, there's nothing too worrisome in there, and those motions rarely succeed. But he does have some non-frivolous claims. I won't sit here and tell you the claims are ridiculous. I don't think they're going to win. But I can see how somebody in Chauvin's position might take some hope that he might succeed there. And Chauvin got a bit of a new opening this week with news about the one juror who might have arguably been misleading in his jury questionnaire about whether he had ever protested police violence. I think it's highly debatable. Similarly, I'm not too worried if I'm the prosecutor there. But again, it's something for Derek Chauvin to cling to. And even if Chauvin didn't beat his Minnesota case through the motions and the appeal, he's looking at a 40-year max. But Through a quirk of the guideline system, he's only looking at a recommended starting sentence of 12 and a half years in Minnesota. It could go up from there. But Chauvin would still have some realistic hope that he'd get out of jail with plenty of life left ahead of him. And now, now the skies have darkened for Derek Chauvin and the other three former Minneapolis police officers in a big way because now the feds have entered the scene. The Justice Department has entered the scene and they've made clear they are playing hardball here. DOJ has now filed federal criminal charges against Derek Chauvin and the other three former officers for the death of George Floyd. This is, of course, a big moment, first and foremost, for George Floyd's family, for the defendants themselves, and for tens of millions of Americans who have been deeply invested in this case and seeing justice done. And finally, it's a big moment and a big statement for the Justice Department itself. So let's break it down. First of all, the indictment. This is a fascinating document, and it is not your typical federal indictment in this kind of police force case. Count one. Count one charges Derek Chauvin alone with violating the civil rights of George Floyd. This is a criminal charge, even though the word civil is right in there. It is a federal crime to deprive somebody of their civil rights if you're acting under what the law calls color of law, meaning as a police officer. The civil right here is the right to be free of unreasonable police seizure. The use of excessive physical force is a type, an extreme type of seizure. DOJ also importantly alleges that George Floyd's death resulted from Derek Chauvin's actions. And that's important because it raises the maximum sentence that Chauvin faces up to life. Technically, he faces the death penalty, but DOJ will not seek the death penalty here. So we're looking at a life max as a practical matter. That part of the indictment is more or less as expected. It's more or less a conventional charge that you'll see against a police officer in an excessive force case. Count two, though, gets interesting and gets a little bit unusual. Now, count two charges two of the former officers, Tao and Kang, with violating George Floyd's civil rights, but not, not 
by aiding and abetting Derek Chauvin, not by physically helping Chauvin hold George Floyd down and deprive him of oxygen, but by failing to intervene, by failing to intervene to stop Derek Chauvin from what he was doing. That is an unusual, novel, and aggressive use of this statute. Again, DOJ is not arguing that Tao and Kang helped directly with the killing physically, but they're arguing that these cops, when they were cops, had an affirmative duty to step in and to stop Derek Chauvin and that they committed a crime by not doing so. And then if you go to count three, this is against all four of the defendants. It's a similar theory. They charge all four of these defendants with failing to render medical aid and thereby depriving George Floyd of his civil rights. Again, this is a novel and aggressive move from DOJ in police cases or really any cases. It won't be as straightforward as the charge against Derek Chauvin. Everyone can understand the knee to the neck. These charges will certainly be challenged and contested in court, but DOJ is making a statement here, and it's an important statement that police officers, at a minimum, do not have the right to just sort of turn a blind eye and say, well, it wasn't me doing it physically, so I have no liability. Which brings us to point two, DOJ, the role of DOJ here and the statement being made by DOJ. There is a new Justice Department in town. We've talked about this. They're not playing around, not when it comes to police cases, not when it comes to cases involving race or extremist hatred. And remember, we're still in the first few months of this new administration. Some of the top officials are only in their third or fourth week on the job. We've already seen pattern and practice investigations, meaning civil investigations of police departments in Minneapolis. And by the way, that's completely separate from these indictments. That civil investigation of the whole police department will carry on separate and apart from these indictments. And in Louisville, we've also seen federal charges in the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Of course, that's not a police case, but the charges there are federal hate crime charges. And we've seen charges of weapons of mass destruction in the case involving the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Sometimes people refer to DOJ in cases like this, in cases of police excessive force, as a backstop or a safety net. I've used those phrases. And the example that comes to a lot of people's minds, I think, is the Rodney King case, where four LAPD officers were tried in the state court and acquitted, found not guilty. The feds then stepped in and charged those officers and managed to convict two of them. The idea was DOJ would only step in if worse came to worse at the state level. The notion was in a week or a difficult case, why be out on a limb if you're DOJ? Why charge a case that the state declined and risked an acquittal? And in stronger cases, the argument would be, well, why use resources? Why pile on? Why do it all over again if the person's already been punished at the state level? Indeed, we have seen DOJ largely, not entirely, but largely on the sidelines in recent years when it comes to these high-profile police killings. DOJ filed no charges relating to the deaths of Eric Garner or Michael Brown. There may be a debate about the merits of those cases, but the states did not charge those cases. The feds then went down the same road and said, we're not charging either. DOJ is still looking at other high-profile police killing cases, including the killings of Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, Jacob Blake. But with this indictment, DOJ is making clear, we're not here to be a backstop. We're going to handle every case on its own 
as we see fit. This really is a new era at DOJ. Not only have we seen charges in a place where we've already seen state charges, but we've seen new and novel ways of charging this from DOJ. And I think that says a lot about the orientation of this new Justice Department and the ethic. And by the way, you may be wondering, isn't there a double jeopardy issue here? I mean, we all just watched Derek Chauvin get tried and convicted in a state court. The other three are set to be tried in Minnesota state court later this summer in August. How can the feds just pile on? The answer is there is no double jeopardy problem here whatsoever. First of all, the feds have brought separate, just different charges. The feds have not charged murder or manslaughter. There really is no federal murder or manslaughter charge that would apply here. They've charged a violation of federal civil rights resulting in death. That's a distinct legal charge. And even if the feds brought the same charge, the Supreme Court ruled just two years ago in 2019 that there's no double jeopardy problem here. It's called the separate sovereigns doctrine, meaning federal prosecutors operate as a separate governmental entity than state prosecutors. And so if they both end up charging the same person for the same conduct, that's not a double jeopardy problem. And then third, and maybe in a sense least important given the enormous institutional and societal interests here, but how does the practical calculus play out now between the federal government and the state government and these four defendants? If we're looking at Derek Chauvin, I just don't see any strategy for him here besides just fight the case within the system and hope for the best. The outlook is bleak. And realistically, I don't see Derek Chauvin ever walking out of prison again. The man is 46 years old. And like I said before, he's doing a likely minimum of 12 and a half years of state time and as much as 40 years. And now he's looking at a life maximum sentence in federal court. And by the way, that sentence can be consecutive, meaning after he does his Minnesota time, or it can be concurrent, meaning at the same time he serves his Minnesota time. And Derek Chauvin faces a second federal indictment separate from the charges relating to George Floyd. This second indictment charges Derek Chauvin in 2017 with assaulting a 14-year-old child. The allegation is that Chauvin held this child by the throat, sound familiar, and struck this child multiple times with a flashlight. And if you've ever held or seen a police flashlight, you can understand how dangerous that is. So Chauvin is looking at two more federal trials ahead. His prospects in those trials are no better than they were in Minneapolis. Derek Chauvin is in a dark place of his own doing. Now, how about the other three officers? Like I said, they are facing state trial in Minneapolis in August in state court. We've talked before about how that trial will be more difficult for prosecutors, and it might make sense, in my view, both ways for there to be a guilty plea. Now I think the incentives are even sharper, are even more pronounced for the three defendants to try to get guilty plea deals if humanly possible, because each of these three defendants Tao, Kang, and Lane are now looking, first of all, at their state trial ahead in Minnesota, and then the federal trial. Look, it's hard enough to beat any one case as a defendant, even in a trickier case like these may be. Never mind to go in and beat the case to get unanimous not guilty verdicts twice. First to get found not guilty 12-0 in the state, and then not guilty again 12-0 in a federal court. And if I'm representing one of these three other officers, I'm getting to that negotiation table as soon as humanly possible to try to work out some kind of plea deal. What number will it take? 
Who knows? That's going to be up to the parties. That's going to be up to the federal and state prosecutors. It's going to be up to the defense lawyers here and the defendants here. One thing to know, though, if you're a defense lawyer, you have to negotiate a multi-jurisdictional plea. In other words, you have to cover all the charges against your client in one plea. You have to get the feds and the state prosecutors all to sign on. That does happen. It, of course, adds an extra layer of complexity. But I've been part of plea agreements along these lines from both sides, from the federal side and the state side, because you can't, as a defense lawyer allow your client to plead guilty in one of the courts, but not the other. He is looking at too much time that way. They can even use his guilty plea against him in the other court. So it's what we call a global plea deal. That's what I'd be looking for if I was representing any of the other three officers here. Really, I'd be looking for anything that could realistically keep my client, my hypothetical client, from doing life or effectively life behind bars. So these are major developments with these federal charges. This story is long from over. We've seen the verdict in the first trial of Derek Chauvin. There is plenty more ahead. And also, importantly, we now see clearly that the Justice Department, the new Justice Department's work in this area, policing the police, they're just getting started. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Third Degree. As always, please send us your thoughts, your comments, and your questions to letters at cafe.com. Third Degree is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tadashore. The audio and music producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer Staten, Noah Azulai, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley.